This is Fordham Conversations. Good morning. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm joined by phone with the author of the new book, There's No Crying in Newsrooms, What Women Have Learned About What It Takes to Lead. Kristen Grady-Gilger is Senior Associate Dean at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. Thanks for joining me, Kristen. Thank you for having me. Now, the book explores the way gender and leadership plays out in organizations, especially news organizations. So what prompted you to write this book? Well, I had been thinking about writing about uh, women leadership, especially in news organizations, partly because I lived it, but also because um, I teach in a journalism school and you know, we try to prepare women and men for uh, for the workplace, and we keep hearing from them that they're they really don't feel totally prepared about for what they're going to face in the workplace. And when you mean what they're going to face, you mean when it comes to not necessarily the job itself, but how they're going to be treated at the job. Yeah, I mean it's um it's everything from you know how you deal with the culture and the environment in newsrooms to how you negotiate for pay to what kind of assignments that you get um and and sometimes just sexual harassment or bad behavior that they have to put up with. So they are aware that this thing these things happen and they don't feel prepared for it. Well, sometimes I don't think they're entirely aware. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe it's millennials or Gen Z, but they sort of, they've been told, you know, you can do anything you want, and they feel very prepared, and they go out there and they go, oh, wait a minute, there are some things here I didn't quite expect. Right, some some, some surprises with how they're being treated. Yeah. And your, yeah. Book, your book states that women heading large companies peaked and declined over the last few years, including in news, TV, and radio. So why do you think this is happening? Well, I mean, I think that there are multiple reasons, but one of the big drivers is what's happening economically to news organizations. So I think over the last 10, 15 years, as news organizations have struggled to make ends meet and in some cases cases to survive, that that has taken, um, that has taken precedence. And the big move uh, push for diversity in, in news organizations really took place in, you know, mid to around 2000. There was a period of time there where it was um, a, a priority for many of them. And it's not that they don't care about it now. It's just that they've got other things on their minds. Looking more at the bottom line, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's back up a little bit before the 80s. Uh, in the 1970s, Tom Collins of Newsday wrote, and this shocked me as well as my newsroom when I read this <laughs> quote, the day is coming, if it's not already here, when it may be impossible for hiring editors to look at a chick just out of journalism school and only see a pair of boobs. So how common was this mindset in most places of business when it came to hiring women? Well, that came from an ASNE, an American Society of News Editors, meeting, mm -hmm. the transcripts of that meeting that took place in the early 70s. And that was a very common perception. Um, the transcript of that, that conference was just <laughs> unbelievable. Um, they had, they spent an entire morning on uh, the problem of women in news organizations. Uh, and and it was um, they, and women got up and spoke and talked about their experiences. Um, one woman said uh, was arguing that you know women weren't getting good assignments because they they wouldn't their bosses wouldn't send them out like at night. 
and they were arguing that that holds them back. And one editor of, uh, I think it was the San Francisco newspaper at the time, a guy said, so you don't care if you get raped on the on, uh, while you're on the job? Mm. And you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was, uh, and, and those women made progress. I mean, we made a lot of progress over the years. Um, at least, um, At least I don't think we have too many of those kinds of comments anymore. At least not that we hear out loud. (laughs) So in your book, There's No Crying in Newsrooms, you talk about two management styles that stem from the film Gone with the Wind. So can you describe the difference between Scarlett O'Hara and the Melanie Wilkes? (laughs) Yeah. So um, women often feel um, that they have a narrower range of styles that they can choose from. So, I mean, there's no one style that fits all men and no one management style that fits all women. But a guy can be, you know, sort of more nurturing and softer, and that might work okay for him. Um, Or he could be, you know, more on the, the hard, tough end, and that could work for him. But women really can't um, most of the time can't uh, succeed choosing one of those sort of um, uh, extreme styles. They have to move toward the middle. Um, if they're too, you know, hardcore, they're going to be seen as a bitch. If they're too um, uh, soft-hearted, uh, they're going to be seen as a wimp, and they won't be listened to or perceived as a leader. So with Melanie and Scarlett, that sort of describes it, right? Melanie is the sort of sweet saccharine one, and uh, you know, Scarlett is uh, maybe a little bit more on the the B side of the equation. And can we go a little bit more into um, what is considered feminine management styles as opposed to masculine management styles? You you touched on that in your book. Yeah. Um, so as I said, women uh, feel like they have, they're constrained to a narrower range of styles, but there's still a range. There's no one. So, you know, we interviewed, um, you know, uh, Marcy McGinnis, for example, who was the, who moved into the number two spot at CBS, which was the highest, CBS News, which is the highest any woman at the time had, had risen. And her style was very much, you know, like, good girl next door, you know, getting her way by sort of sweet talking people into things. Um, And then so you have that that could work. Um, Then you have sort of the other end of the spectrum, which is uh, I uh, Christian Amapur comes to mind. So Christian's just very outspoken. Right. I mean, she'll just say exactly what she thinks. And she's 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 she scared me a little bit when we (laughs) talked. Um, She she's tough. Um, And so you do you still have a range you can choose from. And sometimes you just have to adjust depending upon um, the, the situation. And I remember another notable woman was uh, Diane McFarland, who considered herself sort of a Southern belle. Can you tell me about her and her style? Yeah, so um, Diane was described actually to us by her staff as, you know, somewhat of a Southern belle, you know, perfectly dressed, hair never out of place, um, you know, never, ever raised her voice. And, um, And they said that she managed by eyebrow which I think is really funny. So she would just like lift one eyebrow and people would scramble like because they wanted so badly to please her. Um, And that's another way that it can work. We also talked to Susan Goldberg, who uh, is the editor of National Geographic. And and Susan was interesting because she said she started out on sort of the hard, you know, the, the hardcore style, um, a little bit overbearing, not very empathetic. And 
over the years, she has learned to temper her style, you know, to be a little bit more in the middle. And she says that that's she likes it better because she feels like, you know, she's much more empathetic and she listens better. But it's something that she had to, like, on purpose learn and and uh, and adapt. Now, a lot of women are finding their range now, but in the 1970s and 80s, women entering newsrooms sort of adopted management styles that worked for men around them. So what are the dangers uh, of women who adopted these so-called male characteristics when they become leaders? Yeah, and you can understand why they did that. I mean, if you're entering any workplace that's, um, you know, a, a sort of a macho culture, to get ahead, you need to fit into that culture. So, you know, women back when, and this is, and when I entered news organizations in the 80s, you know, you, if you didn't drink, smoke, and cuss along with the guys, you weren't going to get anywhere. Um, so you can, you can understand why they, they, they fit in. Right. They emulated but, what they saw. Right. And that was the only way you're going to keep your seat at the table, right? It's the only way you're going to get ahead. But, but the, Uh, management research is really interesting on this because they say that, you know, a woman can adopt a male management style and they might get promoted, um, but they are going to be judged more harshly by their their supervisors and they're going to be disliked by their colleagues. So there's a real trade-off there. And that could also hinder them from getting the top positions sometimes. It could. It could. Although, you know, sometimes you can get there. You're just going to be, you know, personally derogated. So, Kristen, when did the management style begin to veer away from women acting like men and and why? Well, I think numbers help. So uh, women really started entering newsrooms in large numbers in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And and if you're not the only woman in the news meeting or in the newsroom, you know, that helps. Um, and, um, and I think that over time that's changed also because um, if you look at the research on millennials and what kind of management style millennials respond to, it's not the hard edge style. You know, they like a much more collaborative, nurturing style. And I think that actually is beneficial for, uh, for the kind of style most women uh, adopt. Now, Kristen, in your book, There's No Crying in Newsrooms, uh, you interviewed authors Claire Shipman and Kathy Kay. Is that correct? Boy, I don't remember that. <laughs> or uh, th- there was a quote there that says um, all, the two authors said that they were surprised by how much accomplished women doubted oh, themselves. Oh, the confidence thing. Yeah, yeah. the confidence. Yeah, thing. actually, we yeah we actually didn't interview them, but we do reference their their work on this mm-hmm. and confidence. I think that was the single thing that surprised me the most. Um, and we interviewed, you know, almost 100 women for this book, uh, many of them in long phone conversations, but also we spent days with, with some of these women. And they're incredibly accomplished. You know, they have run, you know, multi-million dollar news organizations in some cases. You know, they have supervised hundreds of people. And so many of them just express doubt about themselves. Um, I, one woman said to me, I'm still waiting for them to figure out I'm not as good as they think I am. Mm. And, and I went, wow, you know, I mean, by any measure, these women are a success. 
And um, and then I was talking to, I think it was Vivian Schiller, who used to head up NPR, and she really put it in perspective for me. So she said, you know, doubt is not the problem. Doubt is okay. You know, if you have, you know, who wants to work for someone who thinks she's absolutely right all the time? And if you have, if you question yourself, you know, you might listen more closely to people. Uh, you might uh, think more deeply about a decision that you're about to make. Those are not bad things. Um, the problem is, is if you let doubt or lack of confidence paralyze you, uh, prevent you from making decisions, because a leader has to be able to act, even when she doesn't have 100% of the information or she's not 100% sure of the decision. So the key is to make sure that as a leader that you're making decisions that are good for the group. Yeah, but also, I mean, sometimes you're going to make a mistake. I mean, I tell I tell my daughter and and my daughters and and my students, look, you know, you're never going to be a hundred. Rarely will you be a hundred percent sure, and rarely will you have all of the information that you, you would like to have before you have to act. But in in the real world, you know, maybe 80% is good enough. And that means you're going to make a mistake once in a while. But people look to leaders to make decisions and to act, and you have to be able to do that, especially in a news environment, right? This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, talking with author Kristen Grady-Gilger. We're discussing her new book, There's No Crying in Newsrooms, What Women Have Learned About What It Takes to Lead. Sometimes women have blamed their lack of progress, lack of getting ahead on themselves other than a system of sexism. So do you think this is still happening today? Um, yes, I think that um, for a long time, and this is true of all these self-help, many of the self-help books and, and management literature, it's like, you know, you, you the, the the problem is is the women have to fix themselves you know you have to fit in somehow you know you have to put up with bad behavior or sexual harassment and figure out how to deal with it you know you have to get better at asking for a raise you've got to get better at negotiating and you know all of those things are true you know it it, it you can get much better at all of these things but, you know, that puts the onus on the women to fix themselves. And I think that that's what, you know, Julia, my co-author, and I both did as we were coming up in newsrooms. You know, we just, we were fighting this ground war, and we just dealt with things ourselves and thought that if we, if we were good enough, if we adapted, that then that would lead to success. And so in some cases it did. But the younger generation is much more apt to say, no, the problem's not me. The problem is the culture, the company, the policies, um, the organization, and that the responsibility lies with all of us to fix that so that the workplace is more, you know, conducive for for both genders. And I would think that's part of the challenge because, yeah, there is a, a certain amount of taking responsibility for certain things, but then there is also that system. So how do you find the balance? Well, I mean, I think, I think NPR is a, a good illustration. So NPR, it, we were very interested in NPR because it was a news organization that was basically a startup and not very well respected. The pay wasn't all that good, and therefore there were a lot of women there. And um, 
And over the years, NPR has had three women in charge of their, their news operation. And so you wouldn't expect that NPR would be a place where sexual harassment would happen, right? And yet it did. And when it happened, um, the, the what was interesting is how the women uh, responded and what they demanded. So the the older women, you know, the who, who came up in the old culture, the macho culture, said, "Well, you know, just deal with it. You know, this is this is sort of part of the this is part of what you signed up for." And, you know, I'd take care of that guy if you told me about him. And and the younger women were like, no, you know, NPR needs to take care of this. You know, this guy needs to go and this policy needs to be changed. And, you know, and we need more more recourse. And um, in the book, we talk about how uh, during their their um, when the issues were were arising there, the women the young women were posting sticky notes to themselves on the on the bathroom stalls and in the bathroom windows of the of the of, or the mirrors in the women's restroom, you know, saying you know go girl and we got your back and you know and show that support. <laughs> and when Julie and I were there a, a week or so ago, um, I went into the women's restroom and the notes are still there. <laughs> but I think it's it, it <laughs> illustrates how. Uh, there's al- there's almost a generational divide in how women uh, respond to um, you know bad behavior or sexual harassment in the workplace. Mm. I, also, at this time, I think you said that in the book it said it was like 2017. 56 percent of NPR staff was female. Yeah. So again, you would you think have that you know, it. yeah, right. You didn't expect it as much. Um, and recently, we lost Koki Roberts to cancer. As you know, she was an ABC journalist yeah. and considered one of the founding mothers of NPR. And in your book, she, you said that she would bring like knitting or needlepoint <laughs> to her <laughs> meetings. What was this a power move? What was the what was the point? Yeah, of that? I, I love that story. So uh, Sarah Just, who used to work with Koki, tells a story of they go into a news meeting. And it's all guys, and it's Sarah and Koki. And Koki gets out her knitting and starts, you know, starts working away. And and Sarah didn't know what to think about this, and neither did the guys. And they walk out of the room, and uh, Koki says to Sarah, it makes them nervous. Let's keep doing it. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of nervous, one of the uh, stories that I enjoyed um, in your book was – Agnes Underwood, oh, who yeah. was the first female city editor of the major newspaper, she she used to have a loaded gun at her desk. Why? Um, well, uh, <laughs> she had she kept a baseball bat on her desk and a gun loaded with blanks in her desk drawer. And you know when she needed to get and it was she was running a newsroom of all guys. And this was in the 1940s. There weren't women city editors, right? So when she needed to get their attention, she'd just take the gun out and fire fire it into the ceiling. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of maybe what it took at the time. Uh, let's take it back to like 1964, 72 and 78. That's when there were a slew of laws banning discrimination of women. So how did these legal protections help women in leadership roles fight back? Yeah, they were incredibly important. You know, Julie and I have talked about we really didn't appreciate um, how important like the, the Civil Rights Act was. Um, and women, by the way, gender was added to the Civil Rights Act at the, like the very last minute. Um, and so when it passed, I don't think anyone really realized what that was going to mean. And just because a law passed, 64, doesn't mean things change quickly, right? So in 1970, the women at Newsweek sued. 
And at the time, women at Newsweek could be like researchers, fact checkers. Um, they, they couldn't um, be reporters. They didn't get bylines. Uh, women were often assigned to the male reporters and did a lot of the legwork, the reporting and some of the writing, but they didn't get credit for it. And so the women sued and that and they won. And that lawsuit led to lawsuits at a number of other news organizations, including you know ABC and the Associated Press, and and uh, and that is what really started opening the doors. And that was in the '70s when those doors were cracked open. Um, and when Julie and I entered newsrooms, we were like, "Okay, cool. You know, this week women are hired in newsrooms, and we didn't really give a lot of thought to, you know, what it took for us to be there." And you were talking um, in your book, There's No Crying in Newsrooms, what women have learned about what it takes to lead. You tell the story of the pregnant editor. Can you share that story? I, I shared that with a few friends of mine, and they were astounded. Can you tell that story of the pregnant editor? Uh, so that's me. Uh, <laughs> that's the one you're referring to? Yes, that's okay. the one I'm referring to. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, so I'll preface this by saying I don't advise anyone else to do this. Um, <laughs> it was de- you were so dedicated. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, this was in you know the early '80s, and I was at the Times Picayune newspaper in New Orleans, and I was um, a, a bureau chief. I was the only female bureau chief, and I think the highest ranking woman in the newsroom at the time. And I was known as the pregnant editor. I was pregnant when I got there and pregnant again two years later. So you know, I felt like I had a lot to prove. You know, I had to be tough. I had to prove, you know, that I was worthy of this job. And so the night before I was due to give birth to my daughter, um, I went to cover a St. Charles Parish Council meeting, which is a long drive across the Mississippi River. And um, and I get there, and it's, you know, all guys on the council, and they say, are you okay? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, sure, I'm fine. I'm not due till tomorrow. <clears throat> and till tomorrow, uh, so, <laughs> till tomorrow, uh, the meeting runs late. This is before twenty four seven news, so the meeting ran late. It was too late to file the story, so I thought, well, you know, I'm tired. I'm just going to go home. I'll write it in the morning. So I go home, and of course, it, you know, I go into labor at about three in the morning, and uh, my I wake up my husband. You know, contractions have begun. He's like, well, let's go to the hospital. I'm like, no, I can't go to the hospital. I have a story to file. So. I waited till about 8, 8.30 in the morning until I could get the first person on the phone uh, in the bureau, a uh, young single guy, and I get him on the phone. I say, Ron, I have a story to dictate. Um, so I start, you know, uh, dictating the story, and about every four or five minutes I'd say, okay, now I'm going to put the phone down and breathe through a contraction. Hang on, I'll be right back. Put the phone down, breathe through the contraction, pick it up again, say, okay, now where were we? And uh, totally freaked him out, by the way. Um, and, uh, and you know, uh, story done. I still made it to the hospital with a couple of hours to spare. So I think when I left the Times-Picayune about eight years later, that was the story they were still telling about me. I think everybody should tell that story in their newsrooms. <laughs> and again, I don't recommend it. It was a little crazy. <laughs> so um, can we talk about some of the common denominators in the stories of the women that you interviewed for your book? What were some of their shared experiences? For example, how did they, you know, balance work and family? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, we already talked about the the sort of expressions of doubt, um, sexual harassment, and I mean, 
every woman had some story about uh, something that had happened to them. Uh, and then, um, as you said, you know, uh, uh, work-life balance, um, which, you know, a lot of the women sort of scoff at, like there's no such thing. Um, and the women, interestingly, who – and we're talking to women who mostly – who made it to the top or close to the top of their news organizations. And almost all of them had really strong support systems. You know, Mindy Marquis, who's editor of the uh, Miami Herald, said she had a good Cuban mother, you know, who really helped. Um, several of the women – and this was true for, for me as well – you know, their husbands stayed home and took care of the kids while they – you know, worked you know, bad hours, um, and, uh, and we we profile um, uh, Sandy Rowe, Sandy Mims Rowe, who was editor of the Oregonian. You know, her husband had a very successful law career and picked up and moved across the country to Portland, Oregon, so she could, you know, try this editor thing. Um, so they all had a lot of support, but they all, <laughs> even those with a lot of support. Um, you know, carried a large measure of guilt. Um, Jan Leach, who was editor in Akron, tells a story about uh, when 9-11 happened. She's in the newsroom that morning and the towers are falling and everything's going crazy. And they were letting the schools out. And she had uh, twins, I think, in fourth grade and a younger child in kindergarten. And her husband calls her in the newsroom panicked, you know, he says, where are the kids? And she goes, I don't know, I'm busy. And she hangs up the phone. <laughs> and wow. she still feels guilty about that. Um, I remember one time I was, uh, I came home from work early, uh, unusually, around four in the afternoon. This is when I was at the Times-Picayune. And my daughter, who was then seven, eight years old, sitting on the living room floor playing with her best friend. And she looks at me and she says, hi, mom. And I will never forget this. Her friend looks at her and says, I didn't know you had a mom. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, she has a mom. <laughs> I'm just working a lot. <laughs> How did that make you feel? Well, I think, like I said, we all felt really guilty. But, you know, mm -hmm. I think it was um, Mindy Marquis put this into, ex into perspective for me. So she said, what you have to do is not think of it as a 50-50, you know, work versus family uh, at any one time. She said, you know, sometimes it's 100% your family, sometimes it's 100% your career, and then over time, you hope that works out to about 50-50. And I thought, boy, I wish I had heard that when I was, uh, when I was going through this. It would have made me feel less guilty. And that, that's the importance of having that support system where people can give you that type of perspective. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And now that it's in your book, you are passing that on to another generation of uh, young female leaders. And what advice do you have uh, for this next generation of women leaders? Wow. Okay. So uh, each of our chapters is uh, themed, you know, uh, based on, you know, say leadership or sexual harassment or the digital space or uh, work-life balance. And at the end of each chapter, we try, we, we're trying to tell this in, in story form. You know, we wanted this to be narrative because that's what, you know, is more meaningful to people and it's what people remember. So uh, I don't, 
like a lot of leadership books because I think they're, you know, it's sort of bullet points and then there's one or two like good concepts and then they're just repeated 18,000 times. And I didn't want that kind of book. So we're really telling stories about women and their experiences during this period of time that really has not been documented well. Um, uh, especially in, in, in women entering news organizations and the changes, what they experienced and the changes that they, that they made. Um, so we tried to pull out some lessons at the end of each chapter. Um, and, uh, and so there are a lot of lessons in there. Um, so I'm trying to think among my favorite lessons. Um, I think that, um, that you need to what something women don't think a lot about is uh, creating their own narrative in the workplace. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, people will say, oh, you know, Joe, and there's something, a story attached to Joe, or, you know, this is what Joe is in the workplace. And we all have that. It's like, oh, Mary, you know, she's the one you can go to and get answers for anything. Um, and so I think you need to think about what the stories are that people tell about you in the workplace and how that defines you and can define, help define your success in the workplace. So I told the story about, you know, me dictating the story in labor. So that became the story people told about me at the Times-Picayune. And it helped me. Uh, it created a narrative of me as tough and dedicated and takes this job seriously. So that was useful to me. And you can help craft your own narrative in the workplace. Um, I think that's a really interesting thing for women to think about. I'd like to thank my guest, Kristen Grady Gilger. Her book, There's No Crying in Newsrooms, What Women Have Learned About What It Takes to Lead, is out now by Rowan and Littlefield Publishers. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.